Grace Podcast. Each episode will explore a biblical passage or topic, offer insight and application, and point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also will provide devotional interactive questions ideal for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we see what a difference a few weeks can make. Man, how things have changed. Three weeks ago, we were reading articles about skin creams or fretting about hockey playoffs. But now, it's a totally different world, and we are all exposed to it. Now the realities of life and death jump out with new relevance. It's the first of the month a few days ago. Look at the new realities we face now. The rent is due, utility payments will be due, a car payment is due, cell phone bill, health insurance, and on it goes. How is all this going to sort out? What are you going to do if you're in a financial pickle here? And then the stay at home and stay in home and shelter orders. That brings loneliness and isolation. I mean, we're not made for this ongoing social isolation. It brings us down. It doesn't feel right. And there isn't just loneliness, but then we have loneliness with worry. What if you're sick enough and have to be hospitalized and you are alone because there's no visitors and no family, no one to advocate or be with you? Or if it's even worse and you get more sick, you could die utterly alone. You get taken from your home and the EMT takes you away. Is that the last time you'll see loved ones? And so we worry. We worry about our grandparents going through this, or our parents, or even ourselves, and others we know who are vulnerable. And a creeping fear comes in and helplessness. When does this end? What will it look like when it ends? What will the new normal even be? So you can see it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, to have all sorts of cares and worries, to sleep less and be anxious more. There's just too many unknowns. Well, our passage today is a perfect fit for all that is going on in our thoughts. They may be familiar words, but with fresh eyes we can see what we depend on and what really matters. And the passage is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. And here we will read how we are told to be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So let's pick up the verse here in verse 5. We see the main idea for the verse as you you all be clothed. And it's an imperative verb, so this is clear instruction for us. God wants us to put something on. Well, clothed with what? And the passage goes on to say, with humility. Humility, in the scriptures, this word means a lowliness of mind. It's used in Philippians 2.3, where Paul writes, 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the word for humility. It's translated lowliness of mind in Philippians 2.3. So this is to have a correct estimate of ourselves. How we esteem ourselves, it's realistic. It's not inflated or biased. Charles Ryrie says in his study Bible, the word is an attitude of mind that realizes that one is without any reason for distinction in God's sight. Now, there's a direction to this humility in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. This humility is to be to one another. And that's where humility needs to come in because we have this tendency to compare and evaluate and put everybody we know in a pecking order of value or worth or importance. God even tells us this is really unwise to compare ourselves to each other in this way. Another passage on this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. We read there, Paul says, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So you see, the Lord discourages us from making these kinds of judgments and comparisons and pecking orders and superiority mentality. Let's see one another as God sees us. We are all created by God with dignity as creations of his, and we are image bearers of him. And we are all loved by God as God so loved the world, and we are all redeemable. And we all have our hopes and dreams, and yes, we have our fears and our needs. So we're all really very similar, aren't we? So with humility, we're to put on humility toward one another. And then he gives a very specific reason for us to do this. In our passage in First Peter 5, he goes on to say, For, and this is giving us the reason, and he's going to quote some scripture here. It's something that was used in Proverbs 3, verse 34. James chapter 4 has the same phrase, and it's a concept we have heard. It's a general proverb or axiom, and it's a truth to keep in mind where he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Put on humility toward one another because God resists the proud. Now that word resist means he opposes. You see, God and our pride just don't mix well. You know, think relationally. We're like this too. I mean, if you have to be stranded on an island for five days with someone, how many of you would pick the person to be stranded with as the one who's the arrogant one, the one who loves to praise themselves and talk about themselves and defend themselves and cater everything to themselves? No thanks. And God resists or opposes the proud because the proud resist him. You see, the proud, we get stuck on themselves. They are right. They're never wrong. They don't have any need to admit anything. They very self-assured and self-competent and subtly then whether they realize it or not there's this independence psalm 138 verse 6 kind of helps us understand this where the psalmist says for though the lord is exalted yet he regards the lowly but the haughty the proud he knows from afar 
So you see, God is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But when it comes to the proud, he knows them from afar. He stands afar from. Now his love is still there for them. His care is still there. He is wooing. It's all still there. But intimacy, closeness, and fellowship are not there when we are proud or haughty. Because that's when we're really rejecting him and feeling very self-sufficient. So all of his goodness is there, but he stands afar. He's engaged, but there's not intimacy or closeness. But on the other hand, he regards the lowly. The Lord is exalted and he regards the lowly, which means the word means to consider directing one's gaze. In other words, he sees you and he knows you and he stands close. He's with you in that sense. Now, the proud here is a plural noun. It's a group. And the word just means to be arrogant or haughty, to have a high view of yourself, not really based on the real reality. Someone has said, those who proudly regard themselves as the standard of excellence and disdain those who fall short of the standard. Boy, that's, a, that's what it is. Blatant self-exaltation. You know, it's the kind of person you talk to them, and usually within three or four minutes, they've got some self-praise coming out. You know, we all can tend to do this. We may do it with our intelligence, our high regard for our intelligence, our degree. Maybe we can do this with our political views and how we disdain and look down on those with opposing views. Or we can do this as a church. We can become even haughty as we look down on those who don't cross their T's the same way or don't say it right and they're wrong or whatever. We can do this as parents as we lift up our parenting skills, look how good our kids are, and we can have parent righteousness. We can do this with our jobs as we might think that we have worthy of all this money we might earn or these opportunities we might have, and look at those lowlifes who don't have that. Boy, it can come so naturally for us to slip into this kind of mindset. We just need to be honest here. You know, God says, you and I, we're not better than anyone. You're not better than anyone. Oh, but I'm not in jail or something like that. No, but still a sinner. You still are a sinner deserving of God's punishment, just like they are. Yeah, we may live differently or avoid some bad consequences, a different lifestyle, but you and I, we are not intrinsically better than they are. And so God resists or stands afar, not having close of fellowship with the proud. The proud are the ones who are not putting on humility. So remember, this proverbial truth, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. This is the reason given why we should put on humility. So first, we don't want God to resist us. We want to be close. We want to have this relational fellowship. So in contrast to the proud, it says, but. But God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Those who have put on humility, you get grace grace. Undeserved kindness. God treating you though you don't deserve it. You get what you don't deserve. This is pure goodness and kindness from God. Just imagine standing in the shower in the morning and instead of water, it's grace flowing down, flowing upon us. It's so good. So this humility, though, this humility that we put on, it doesn't come naturally. It needs to be put on because it's supernatural in essence. 
This humility requires honesty with ourselves. And when we're honest with ourselves and we're open like that, that brings vulnerability and that's risky. You see, pride is like putting a shell around us. Oh, it feels good. It gives us protection. And we're not so vulnerable in this shell. And we don't have to be totally honest either. And it's safer. It's not risky. But it creates a barrier to real connection and relationships. Without honesty, there cannot be significant intimacy or closeness. And that's what's awesome in a relationship. But those relationships are risky. To be known and really seen is risky. To really be honest and know ourselves, ugh, that's risky too. So we're told to put on humility, especially toward one another. And we then can enjoy God's amazing grace coming upon us in a, in a personal realization way. But how do we put on this humility? Well, verse 6 goes on and says, Therefore, therefore, we're to humble ourselves. You see, God gives grace to the humble, so therefore humble yourselves. But in this case, literally, the verb is passive, and so it means permit yourself to be humbled, is the idea. Allow yourself to be humbled, because God gives grace to the humble, so allow yourselves to be humbled, which means you have to allow yourselves, you know, to be vulnerable, to be exposed, to deal with reality as it really is. And where is this place of humility? Where is it identified? Be humble. Allow yourself to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, the verse says. Under is a location. Notice we are under and God is over. Remember, humility <clears throat> is a lowliness of mind. So we're under the greatness of God, the mighty hand of God. Now, to grasp this better, we have to review a famous Old Testament story of the children of Israel who were brought out of Egypt with the ten plagues, you know, the famous story, and they're brought to the edge of the Red Sea. And it's there where the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he decides that he's going to pursue them. In Exodus 14, we look at verses 10 through 14. It says, Pharaoh drew near. And the children of Israel lifted their eyes as they're, they've got a mountains on one side and the Red Sea in front of them and coming bearing down on them are these Egyptians in their chariots and it doesn't look good. So they lifted their eyes. They beheld the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, their leader, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. We like being slaves. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, the deliverance, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see them again no more forever. Your greatest problem will be dealt with. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And so there's our story. The, the Israelites have been, lowly Israelites have been taken out of Egypt. They were slaves, but God in his mighty hand brought down plague after plague, and Pharaoh said, I give up, I give uncle, I say uncle, and he lets them go, and they go with 
all people giving them money and, and gold and silver, and they leave with wealth. But now they find themselves in a rock and a hard place right in between them. And do you think they had a little bit of fear? Do you think they had some anxiety? Fear, anxiety, doubts. Moses, we should have just died. No, no you brought us here to, doubt, to, to die in the wilderness. Just repeat this, and this is what they're going through. Just like maybe what you and I are going through today and our circumstances right here in 2020. Well, why bring in this story? What does this have to do with anything? Well, how is God's amazing and awesome deliverance? As you know the story, the Red Sea parted and the children of Israel went right through the Red Sea. And when the Egyptians pursued them, the Red Sea then collapsed again. The waters fell and drowned them. And just like it said, they were a problem no more. Well, when we see this event, this whole story of God's deliverance and the miracle of the Red Sea and that which led up before it, notice how it's carried out in scripture. Moses, who is now with these same people years later, preparing them to enter the promised land, is reviewing and refreshing with them the things that had happened. Deuteronomy 4.34, Moses says, Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? Before your eyes. Rehearsing this again in one chapter later, Deuteronomy 5.15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 6.21, Moses goes on, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And one more in Deuteronomy 7.8, Moses is continuing. He says, But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Various other Old Testament references also speak of God's mighty hand and of this amazing event where God took them through their trial. And under God's mighty hand, it's his mighty hand that did this. Mighty hand stresses who God is. Mighty hand, his mighty hand stresses his sovereignty. His mighty hand stresses his power and his authority. Mighty hand stresses God's personal intervention for his people. Mighty hand puts you safely under, under this protection, under his divine purposes. His mighty hand draws you into him and who he is and his personal awareness, even of you and your difficulties. The mighty hand of God, there's a place of comfort. There's a place of security. There's a place, of course, then by implication, a place of humility. As you are safely under. Who wants to resist that? I don't want to argue with that. I want to climb under. It makes total sense. That's a great place to be. And so, friends, allow yourself to go under the mighty hand of God. Remember his power as creator and as sovereign king. And remember the salvation, the deliverance he offered to all of us at the cross. 
and be refreshed by his grace that provides care and blessing. And even go on a a historical summary in your own life like Moses did with them in Deuteronomy. Go back and see where God saved you and then how he has walked with you and his presence has been with you and he's been there and he's done this for you and he's done that and he answered that prayer and he showed up in that situation. And be refreshed and choose to go under his mighty hand as this is what he's doing. So that's the reason to put on humility, but it there's even more. As we go on, the reason to go under, to be under his mighty hand as God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That's why we want to put on humility and we want to go under so that, the text goes on, he may exalt you in due time. Under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, because he gives grace to the humble, it says before that. So, he may exalt you in due time. Exalt is the cause enhancement to give honor and fame and fortune. Acts 2.33 and 5.31 tells us that Jesus, since the resurrection, has been exalted to the right hand of God, and there he sits exalted. And you and I as believers, if we're saved here today, we're associated with Jesus. We, Our position is in him, and we're seated in the heavenlies with him. And so our exaltation, first and foremost, is found in our position in him, which is true of every believer. But it will also be exalted in time. Because there's a timing here element given. He may exalt you in due time. So when will be exalted? Sometime in our walk here. There's a due time, a time that God chooses, his time, his timetable. And he knows the best time. In fact, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 17, we read, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. When did God exalt the nation of Israel? And when did he step in on his timetable? In real time, God will step in. So this verse just keeps getting better. When we're mentally humbled before him and we're taking in who he is, we appreciate his person, his deliverance, and his power, and his actions, and his goodness. And then in turn, he exalts you and I. He exalts us up. And that's really good stuff to learn so far. But we get to verse 7. How can I be humbled? We still might be asked, but how exactly am I humbled? Or how does that work? How do I put on humility, the key verb back in verse 5? Well, I think verse 7 really explains it. Because verse 7 says, Casting all your cares unto him, for he cares for you. This is now the crescendo, the climax. Casting is a participle. That means it's like an adjective, so it's modifying us, what we're doing. We're casters. We're casting is the hope and the idea here. And casting is the one is describing the humble one. Now, to cast means to transfer, to take your concerns and put them on someone else. It actually means a transferring of responsibility on someone. Imagine that. Take all your worries and cares and things and just... Put them on the Lord. He will take the responsibility for them. And the, the verb implies a decisive act. It's like an energetic act, like a key thrusting upon him. 
And it's a technical consideration here, but it's a it's an aorist participle, which means that the casting is simultaneous with the action of the verb. So the casting is occurring at the same time as we are being humbled. So that's how you are humbled. Because casting your care onto him is an act of dependence. It's an act of faith, of trusting in who and what he's all about. And it's the one who's been humbled now can go to the Lord relationally and cast their care onto him. How am I to be clothed with humility? We saw by putting yourself in the, the place of being under the mighty hand of God and recognizing his abilities and what he has done and his deliverance. And then how am I then practically humbled? I'm casting all my cares onto him, an act of dependence. And I do that, of course, by way of prayer, showing again relationship. And honesty is part of being humbled. Honesty, I see things I don't like. When we see things we don't like, we tend, instead of being totally honest, we tend to do the spiritual hustle. Tactics of doing and trying and fixing and covering and pretending, and this is really just pride. So friends, instead of doing the hustle as you see things honestly and you see yourself, just cast all your cares onto him. He'll take care of them. Instead of resorting to the hustle. Yeah, it's riskier and you have to be vulnerable. But remember, there's little risk or vulnerability with pride. So what do I cast? We see we cast all of our cares, our anxieties, our worries is the term. That which brings disruption of the mind. And it's used in Luke chapter 1041 in the famous story of Martha and Mary, two sisters that loved the Lord and knew him, and he came to their house and he was visiting. And Martha, the one sister, was, the text says, distracted. And then it says she was worried as she came in and said, hey, her sister Mary just was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him and learning from him. And Martha was in the other room and distracted and trying to serve. And she bursts in and says, Lord, don't you care? And he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. And that word worried is the word we see in 1 Peter 5, 7 for cares. So distraction is a disruption of the mind. And so then he corrects her, says very nicely, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled with many things. What Mary has chosen is the better thing. And that's where the story ends. But don't you just assume if we could stay there and see what's going on, that Martha would have sat down with Mary and they would have enjoyed fellowship now? As Martha would have basically said, Jesus is saying, cast all your cares onto me. I'm going to take care of them. Sit down like Mary. Don't be distracted. And so we're in times like these where we're distracted. I mean, the world is distracting. It's all chaos right now. And we have worries, very legitimate cares and worries. You know, this is normal. This is to be expected. There's just too many what-ifs all over the place. So don't kick yourself for having some anxieties or issues here. Yes, you have cares and worries and anxiety. That's not the problem. That wasn't the problem with Martha either. It was being distracted. What is it that we can do with them? 
Instead of taking those worries and anxieties and putting them on yourself and your shoulders and your load to carry, and you have to figure it out and you solve it, you can go under the mighty hand of God and see that mighty hand and all that he is. And then you can take all those worries and cares and anxieties and thrust them on him as he promises that he cares for you. Well, how many worries as we go on casting all, the whole of something, all your anxiety, all your worries. So here the emphasis is not so much on casting them individually one by one, but just all of them. So it's the entirety of it. It's all your past memories, all your present pressures, all your future worries. And now comes the best part. Why should you do that? Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Now, here's a different word, he cares, than the ones casting our cares onto him. They're two different words. Here, this word that he cares for you means that it is a care to him. It is of interest. It is something you concern yourself with. You see, your worries and concerns and the things that are struggling with, it matters to him. Anxious lives matter. Troubled hearts matter. Worried souls matter. All your cares are very much his personal concern. Doesn't mean he's going to just take them all away and, you know, solve them all circumstantially. But he cares and he knows and he wants you to, to come to him and depend in faith. Sometimes we think it's the good Christians, you know, the Bible memorizing theological savants who are so stable and grounded and are somehow immune to being stressed. They're never tossed or wounded by anxieties, not them. They're spot on. They succeed. And you, loser, you sit here and struggle with worries and trite little anxieties, proving your second-class Christian existence, you're dull of hearing, you're tossed to and fro, you're a big walking mass of disappointment. Friends, I want you to know that kind of thinking is self-inflicted legalistic baggage. On either side of the thinking, if you think you're the good one, remember you're no champion. You're not so great that you're beyond ups and downs and doubts and bewilderment. Look at any biblical character in the Bible and you'll see how they have ups and downs and ins and outs and struggles. Let's not think that way. Let's go under and put on humility. Or if you're the one that's down on yourself and thinks you shouldn't be struggling, you shouldn't have these, these worries, it just means you're just a loser. No. You're no loser. There is no loser beyond God's rescue and his desire to lift you up. God cares for you. It doesn't matter if even you've been failing or you have been wayward or you are dull. You have little to draw on. It doesn't matter if you have been flourishing or enjoying the Lord on the positive side. Either way, God cares for you. And he cares about your concerns and your issues. No qualifiers. So cast away. Don't feel guilty. He is there. He'll take it from you. If you've been dull, cast your care. If you've been wayward, cast your care. If you've been positive and growing, cast your care. God cares for you. So be drawn into him and let him overwhelm you with this care and this love. What a blessed reality. We go to the last passage here on examples of his care. It's in John chapter 10, verses 10 through 15. Jesus is speaking about his, in the Good Shepherd uh, section of his um, uh, Good Shepherd, we could say a parable. And he's 
sharing with us about the hireling, the one who's not the shepherd versus him who's the good shepherd. <clears throat> he says, I have come as the good shepherd that my sheep may have life and that they may have it more abundantly in John 10.10. 10. He goes on and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known by my own, and the Father knows me, and even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And then two verses later, he says, and then I take it up again. I lay my life down for the sheep. I will take it up again. His death and his resurrection shows how he cares for us. The good shepherd cares for the sheep in contrast to the hireling that does not care about the sheep. So his care and his love is always brings us to the cross. There a debt was paid that none of us could pay. Our sin brings judgment upon ourselves. That judgment results in separation. Just like we put someone in jail because of what they have done and that they are not shouldn't be out in society. Society is has has a, is ha, has a righteousness, so to speak, and they've broken that and violated that and are separated. So we cannot enter heaven in its righteousness because of our sin. And so he wants us, though, to have a holy home and to be with him and to have relationship and to enjoy him. So instead of separation, he gives us life. He breaks the curse of sin. He suffers and dies for us. He takes upon himself the price that we couldn't pay. And he arranges all of this as a supreme act of love as he lays his life down for us as the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then he gives us his righteousness and he gives us his life because our sins then are forever paid for when we believe on him. When we trust that he loves us and gave himself for us and we believe that he's offering life, as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes, whosoever trusts that, shall never perish but have eternal life. You become his sheep by faith and his death and his resurrection on your behalf. And at that point in time, life is given, and it's eternal life. Our last verse today is John six forty seven. Jesus was teaching. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's it, one simple verse. He who believes in me has everlasting life. So my question to you as listeners, do you have it? Do you have it? There's no reason to hesitate or wonder there. He who believes in me has it, everlasting life. How tragic to die without knowing this, this love. This feeling, a feeling of being unloved is a huge burden, a weight beyond compare. And it's not true. You're not unloved. You are loved, and God is more real than any of our feelings. We are loved, and we are not alone. And whoever believes in him, if you respond to that love by faith, you have everlasting life. I hope and pray that you have this life and you can now enjoy it even more abundantly. Life as the sheep and the good shepherd's flock. So how do you enjoy this abundant life now that you're saved and if you've entered that and you've taken on this, this gift of life by faith? 
You can enjoy this abundant life by going under his mighty hand and going under and being humbled there and then taking your mental anxieties and struggles and worries and giving them over to him, casting them onto him because he cares for you. F. Scott Fitzgerald said the loneliest moment in someone's life is when they are watching their whole world fall apart and all they can do is stare blankly. Well, friends, it might seem like the whole world's falling apart, but we have so much more we can do than just stare blankly. We can do so much more than that. We can call for help. We're not alone, and we can cast our cares on him, and he will take them. And then we can enjoy this amazing Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you now for this reminder of your care for us. Thank you that you're the good shepherd and you have demonstrated that by giving your life because you care for the sheep. Just thank you at the cross, Lord, that you gave life. You purchased it. You secured it through your death and your resurrection now is a victorious life. We can have it. We can know we have eternal life by simply putting our faith in you. He who believes in me, you said, has everlasting life. I pray that everyone here listening would, at a point in time, just even now, put their faith in you and what you've done for them. And thank you then that you will shepherd our daily life and that you care for us and you are leading us. We can cast all our cares onto you and bask in this wonderful love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening again. There are devotional and discussion questions available that are really good for your own personal um, study or even for small groups. And you can have them. We'll just email, just email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com and we'll send you the link for those questions. Until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.